0: hello my name is daniel and i'm a third year engineer student um, and i'll be doing the bible reading for us today you can find it on the inside cover of your handout Uh, we're reading hebrews chapter 6 verse 20 and hebrews chapter 7. jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of melchizedek this melchizedek was a king of salem and priest of god most high He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him the tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Then also King of Salem means King of Peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him the tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descendants from Abraham. This man, however, did not not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of the indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinless, exalted from the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sin once for all when he offered himself, for the law appoints as high priests, men in all their weakness. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever.
1: Well, as many of you will know, just a few short weeks ago on Easter Sunday, Multiple churches in Sri Lanka were bombed, leaving hundreds of people dead and many others wounded. These people were attacked specifically because of their faith in Jesus by people who want Christians dead. And we can only imagine for some of those who were in these churches and these communities, what some of them might have been thinking for those who had lost loved ones in the blast. As they came face to face with the heartbreak and the grief and the loss, they might be wondering, is it worth it? If following Jesus means facing this kind of opposition, is it worth it? Would it be easier just to throw in the towel? Now, for you and me in Australia, as followers of Jesus, we're in a very different situation, aren't we? We don't face that kind of opposition. I've never been worried about a bond going off in church. I've never feared for the lives of my family because I'm a Christian. And yet, strangely, in a very different way, we too can sometimes wonder if it's worth it following Jesus. When we're feeling the struggle of living as a Christian, The fight against sin, the the doubts, the worries, the pressure from friends and society. When it feels like it's all too hard, we can wonder, is it worth it? Now this isn't a new question. It's one that in some form or another, Christians have faced since the very beginning. The letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians in the first century AD no more than 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. They were Jews who had recognised Jesus as the Messiah and begun to follow him. But when they did, they soon found themselves being persecuted, publicly insulted, thrown into prison, having their property confiscated. And the temptation for them in that situation was to forget about Jesus and to go back to their old ways of Judaism. The religion that they had grown up with. If they did that, life would get a lot easier. The pressure from those around them would stop. Plus, I mean, Judaism looked like a pretty decent alternative. Think, for example, about the temple huge, impressive, towering over the city of Jerusalem beneath it. Or think about the sacrifices that were made in the temple day after day many priests gathering around making sacrifices that you could see and smell they were a tangible picture of God's forgiveness the temple the priests the sacrifices these are things that you could see and smell and touch so look I mean if Jesus if following Jesus is going to come at such a high cost maybe they should just go back to their old way of doing things maybe God will still save them through the old priesthood and sacrifices That's what they were struggling with. So in Hebrews chapter 7, which we just had read it out for us, which we're looking at today, the author of Hebrews wants to encourage these Christians to stand strong in the faith by reminding them that Jesus is better. That he's better than the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament. That he's better than the massive temple. And he's better than the sacrifices made there for sin. And what he does in this chapter is that he shows them from the Old Testament itself. And he shows them that the Old Testament was always pointing to the need for a better high priest. Who would supersede the old system and replace it forever. That's what he's doing here in chapter 7 but it's important to understand a little background before we jump into the text itself now all of the israelites all of the jews were descended from a guy named abraham now abraham he lived about 2000 bc he had a son named isaac then isaac had jacob and then jacob had 12 sons probably homeschooled had a minibus as well he's going for that family planning option And and these 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of these sons was named Levi. And what was special about the tribe of Levi is that they were appointed to be the priests. Every priest in Israel had to come from the tribe of Levi. And so it was called the Levitical priesthood. And the first high priest of this priesthood, the top dog, to borrow a phrase that was used earlier, was a guy named Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses and Aaron was the first high priest. So this Levitical priesthood was the order of Aaron and that was the priesthood that Israel had always had for as long as they had existed. But here's the thing. The author of Hebrews wants to remind his readers that the Old Testament promised that one day there would come a priest from a different priesthood which meant that the Levitical priesthood was only temporary and they shouldn't go back to it. Have a look in your handouts with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Reading from verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the Old Testament law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now of course this raises the question, who on earth is Melchizedek? I mean obviously he's the top contender for cutest baby name of 2000 BC. Just imagine holding your little baby there thinking, I think he looks like a Melchizedek. But but who is he? Who's it talking about? Because when you look into it, Melchizedek is actually a bit of a mysterious figure. He's only mentioned twice in the whole of the Old Testament and we're not given a lot of detail. His first and most substantial mention comes in Genesis 14. But even there, he kind of appears out of nowhere and then just as quickly, disappears. Have a look. This This is the entirety of the place where he's mentioned. Genesis 14 verses 17 to 20. After Abram, that's Abraham, after Abram returned from defeating Kedaloma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, here he is, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. That's all we get, and then he disappears completely. It's almost like you're halfway through a movie, when suddenly a new character bursts onto the scenes for 30 seconds, uh, with no explanation, he exchanges a few words with the main protagonist, and then he's gone you kind of go who is that guy what's he doing we're kind of left with more questions than answers i mean think about this for example how could this guy melchizedek be a priest of god most high after all he's not even part of god's chosen people he's not an israelite one of abraham's descendants so how can he be a priest of the true god and he's not just any priest he seems pretty important So important that Abraham, the patriarch of all Israel, would take a tenth of all he had and gave it to this guy, Melchizedek. Who is he? Well, again, we're left with more questions than answers, aren't we? And in the whole rest of the Old Testament, he only gets one more mention. About a thousand years after Abraham, so if Abraham's 2000 BC, then around 1000 BC, he pops up ...in a really important place. Brief mention, but it's an important place. Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is a prophecy about Israel's Messiah. The Messiah was a future king who would rule over God's people... ...and deliver them from their enemies. And check out what Psalm 110 says to this Messiah. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion... You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> okay, so this psalm prophesies that Messiah will be a, a mighty king with a mighty scepter who rules over his enemies. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, everyone was expecting he'd be a king. But then it also says, doesn't it, in that second half, that the Messiah will be a priest, as well as a king. And not just any priest, but one in the order of Melchizedek. To come back from our picture before, there's Abraham and the Israelites who descended from him with the Levitical priesthood. Then there's Melchizedek over here, and it's saying that the Messiah will be a priest forever, an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek rather, rather than being from the order of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. Now, what you, what you might notice about Psalm 110 is that it doesn't give us any new information about Melchizedek, does it? All it does is refer back to Melchizedek from Genesis 14. But what it shows us, and this is key, it shows us that Melchizedek, mysterious as he was, was a kind of pattern, a foreshadowing of the Messiah who was to come. He was a small picture of the kind of person that the Messiah would be. Both a priest and a king. A king of righteousness. That's literally what the name Melchizedek in Hebrew means. Melki, melech, king, righteousness, tzedek. It's picturing the kind of person that this Messiah would be. A righteous king who would bring peace a priest as well and notice what Psalm 110 says about this priest the Messiah would be an eternal one who would live forever and that itself is a a pretty big claim isn't it because here's the thing every single priest that Israel ever had from the Levitical priesthood had one thing in common do you know what it is? they died without exception, every single one. They weren't priests forever because they didn't live forever. But this Messiah will somehow, somehow will live forever. And these are exactly the ideas that the author of Hebrews is picking up in Hebrews, in our passage today. In Hebrews 6.20, it says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, of course, What what do priests do? What's the main thing in their job description? The main thing priests do is they offer sacrifices so that the people can be forgiven and accepted by God. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. Not through animal sacrifices, but through the sacrifice of his body on the cross, Jesus made a way for the people to be forgiven and accepted. Not only did Jesus... Uh, die. If you like, he was not only the priest, but also the animal that was sacrificed. He was the Passover lamb whose blood was slain. But also, on the third day, he rose again from the dead to everlasting and indestructible life. He now lives forever. And so Jesus has shown himself to be that one who is promised in Psalm 110. Have a look in your handouts with me at Hebrews 7, verse 15, where the author picks up on this. Hebrews 7, 15. And what we have said is even more clear. He recognises it. Maybe it's not that clear at the start. It's a bit hard to understand. What we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. That's Jesus. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, as a Levite, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life through his resurrection. For it's declared, in a quote Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation, the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament law, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. it's saying, Jesus is a better priest. In him, a better hope is introduced, better than the old system of temple and animal sacrifices. And remember, these aren't just theoretical ideas. Do you remember the context that Hebrews was written in? These were Jewish followers of Jesus who were facing persecution. They were facing opposition. They were struggling with the temptation to turn their back on Jesus and go back to their old ways of doing things. And the author of Hebrews is saying, No, don't do it. Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's better than the sacrifices, than the temple, than that whole system. Those things were always there. They had their time, they had their purpose, but they had a use by date. They were pointing forward to something better, someone better, who would fulfil them. Don't give up on following Jesus, no matter the cost, no matter the difficulties or the opposition, because Jesus alone is the one who can truly save us and bring us to God. he fleshes this out for them in verses 23 to 27. Have a look in your handouts with me, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests, the Levitical ones, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. When he offered himself. Short version, Jesus is better. He's a high priest who truly meets our need, who can truly save us and bring us to God. And for the original recipients of this letter, this was news that they really needed to hear, to remind them to stand firm in Jesus and to not give up. But you know, this passage also has a lot to say to you and me today to help us know Jesus better and to encourage us to stand firm in him. And it encourages us in at least two specific ways. Firstly, it reminds us that Jesus' work is finished. Jesus' work is finished. We can see this in verse 27. Unlike other high priests, Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again. Because he did it once for all. What it's saying is that Jesus' death on the cross was a once for all sacrifice. Never needs to be repeated. Never needs to be added to. Jesus' death paid for all of your sins if you have put your trust in him. Past, present and future. And this is so important for us to grasp because practically it's so easy to forget. You know, often when we fall into, into sin and we, and we feel the, the guilt starting to creep in, we might think, I'm, I'm so sorry, God, I, I promise I'll make it up to you. I, I'll, I'll read the Bible more, I'll go to church, I'll, and we start thinking of things. But as soon as we slip into that mindset, we're forgetting that Jesus' work is finished. We're acting as if, you know, maybe Jesus' death covered my past sins, uh, but now for God to forgive me, I've got to make it up to him somehow. I've got to add to what Jesus has done for me. But, but friends, that attitude will kill us. It will suck all the joy out of living for God. Instead, in that moment when we feel the guilt creeping in, we need not promise that we'll do things better. We need to remind ourselves of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, about to die, he cried out three words. It is finished. It's finished. It's done. All your sins, past, present and future, have been atoned for. And so that means practically for you and me, when we're in that moment and we feel the guilt weighing us down, instead of promising God that we'll try harder or make it up to him, we need to remind ourselves that it is Finished, And we can pray for God's forgiveness, receive his free gift of grace with gratitude and confidence and joy. And then go out seeking to live for God, not so that we can try make it up to him. But joyfully living in the light of the grace that he has shown us and seeking to love others freely the way he's loved us. That's the first reminder that we get from this passage. Jesus' work is finished. And secondly, Jesus is interceding for us. Have a look with me again at verses 24 to 25. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now here's the thing, although Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, it's finished, that doesn't mean that Jesus is just sitting up in heaven right now, kicking back and relaxing, doing nothing. No, if you have trusted in Christ, he is right now at God's right hand interceding for you. Now to intercede means to intervene on someone else's behalf, means to advocate for them. And the Bible tells us that right now, Jesus is actively interceding for us. When we screw up again, when we walk into the same old sin, when Satan accuses us before God, pointing out all the ways we've failed, Jesus is interceding for us. He's defending our case, pointing to his once-for-all sacrifice so that we can have confidence in our standing before God. And this is so important because it means that Jesus hasn't just died on the cross for us and then left us to our own devices. Alright guys, I've done my bit. Now the rest is up to you. Good luck. No, it means Jesus is actively working for you. He is on your side. It means that God is eager to shower his mercy on you through Jesus. It means that God is more willing to forgive than often we are even to ask. Friends, this passage reminds us that in Jesus, we have a high priest who meets our deepest need. A high priest who has conquered death through his resurrection and now lives forever and he's therefore able to save us completely to save us from sin to save us from death so that if we trust in him nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Jesus and this is great news for those Jewish believers who Hebrews was written to who are facing pressure to turn their back on Jesus A reminder that Jesus is better. And it's also great news for those believers in Sri Lanka who are facing opposition for their faith in Jesus and might be tempted to throw in the towel. A reminder that through Jesus, not even the bombs of the terrorists, not even death can keep them from God. And it's also great news for you and me when we're feeling the challenge of living for Jesus the fight against sin, the doubts, the fears, the pressure from friends and society, when it feels like it's all too hard, we can know that Jesus is right now interceding for us, that he is alive forever, and that he has done everything required to bring us to God, a high priest who is able to save us completely. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you for the way that the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament foreshadows and points us to Jesus. The one who you planned all along, who would come to save us from sin and death. Lord, in the midst of the challenges and the pressures that we face, would you continue to point us to Jesus? Help us not to fix our eyes on what we do, but to fix our eyes on what he has done so that we might have confidence and joy as we seek to live for you in light of all that you have done for us.
0: And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.